This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, dear listener, a very happy new year to you. Old Lang Syne, as the poet says, a lovely Scottish phrase that means literally old long since, or in the way we actually talk in English, times gone by. And I've been thinking about times gone by this holiday season. You see, Bold Dominion is turning three years old right now. I started this podcast shortly after Virginia's 2019 elections, which saw Democrats control the House of Delegates, State Senate, and governorship for the first time in a generation. I knew things would be changing. I knew Virginia's social and cultural changes in recent decades might finally be reflected a bit more in our state politics. And without criticizing my colleagues in the news biz, I also saw a need for better media coverage of state government. Every winter, it felt like during the General Assembly session, media outlets served up a fire hose of one-off news stories about this bill or that bill and budgets and stalemates, but very few stories that actually increased my understanding of state politics. Stories that provided historical context or that explained how things really work, who pulls the strings, whose money moves the levers of power, and where normal citizens like you and me fit in. So it's been a three-year journey so far. If you're new to this show, feel free to peruse some of the back catalog over at bolddominion.org. Those episodes are like old acquaintances. And after all, old acquaintances should not be forgotten. It's also time to look ahead. The Virginia General Assembly is gearing up for another jam-packed legislative session. Lawmakers convene in Richmond next Wednesday, January 11th. And since this is an odd-numbered year, they're only scheduled to meet for 30 days, though they will almost certainly extend that session by a few weeks. And, just like last year, this year's General Assembly takes place in a milieu of divided government. Democrats have a majority in the state Senate, while Republicans control the House of Delegates and the governorship. So what does that mean for lawmaking this time around? To answer that question, Bold Dominion producer Arian Balu spoke with longtime friend of the show, Michael Pope. He's a journalist who covers state politics and the General Assembly. Well, the biggest anticipation you should probably have is that not a lot of stuff is actually going to get done. And there are a confluence of events here that will prevent a lot of major policy decisions from happening. One is this is a short session. So Virginia ping pongs every year between having what they call a long session and then a short session. So um, the short session is a strike really against getting a lot of complicated stuff done because they've got such a short window of time they're dealing with. It is also an election year. 2023 isn't a year when all 100 seats in the House of Delegates will be up for re-election and all 40 seats in the state Senate will be up for election. And so election year politics usually don't work all that well with making major policy changes. So that's another strike against big things happening. And then you also, on top of that, have the once in a decade redistricting, uh, which is finally happening after a delay. And you got a lot of incumbent members running against other incumbent members. So like, I think there's like two dozen members of the House who are currently engaged in a primary fight against other members of their same party who are also incumbents. So um, that kind of politics can get vicious and once again works against making major policy decisions. 
And then, of course, the biggest reason that we're really not going to see a lot of action this year is divided government. So we've got a Republican governor. We've got a Democratic Senate. We've got a Republican House. They don't like to play with each play well with each other. And anytime you get an issue about like abortion or guns, that one side is going to introduce something and the other side is going to kill it or vice versa. And so the, the biggest issue that we're really not going to see a lot of action this year is divided government. So with all that said, is there any hope for stuff around the margins? Any kind of bipartisan efforts that may come down the pipe? Yeah, well, it, having just trash talk our entire system of government, let me let me say this, that there there is one sort of big major sweeping thing that is on the horizon, that is bipartisan and is going to receive a lot of discussion this year. This is mental health reform. The governor has a proposal to transform the behavioral health system in Virginia. It's a program that he calls Right Help Right Now, and he wants to throw $230 million at this plan uh, by creating new like mobile crisis units. So you know, the proposal has $20 million for 34 new mobile crisis units. Um, then there's a $58 million proposal here to increase the crisis receiving centers and crisis stabilization units. There's $9 million to expand telebehavioral health services in public schools and on college campuses. $9 million for transportation and in-hospital mentoring by law enforcement officers. So, you know, a lot of times what happens is law enforcement gets involved in these cases that are actually people having a mental health crisis. And the last thing you want is for those people to get involved in the criminal justice system, which they will never get out of, and that doesn't help anybody. And so this, all this money actually would go to helping people in crisis instead of arresting them and incarcerating them. So um, that's a bipartisan kind of discussion that, you know, the governor is clearly is taking this really seriously and has some very serious proposals about this. And I'm sure you will recall Senator Cree Deeds have, had a son who had a mental health crisis and ended very tragically. And, you know, he made a decision at that point that he would devote the rest of his career to trying to do something about this problem. So I would anticipate that we would see Democratic State Senator Cree Deeds working with Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin on that issue in 2023. That actually sounds pretty huge. Uh, do you have any sense of where that came from on the Republican side? Well, I mean, it is a crisis and it's actually it's one that it the nobody is happy with the status quo. So, you know, sheriffs that run jails, they're not happy with the status quo because they don't have the training to handle people who ha are in mental health crisis. And the jails is where they often end up. So, you know, solving this problem helps jails run more efficiently. You've got police departments. They're not really trained to deal with people in mental health crisis. Oftentimes you've got uh, officers who are forced to stay with people while they're in crisis until they can get help or even transport them different places. And so this is the kind of thing where everybody recognizes the problem. Everybody realizes something needs to be done about it. And the real hurdle is money. And so here we got Governor Glenn Youngkin saying, okay, yeah, let's invest $230 million and see if we can try to make headway into fixing some of these problems. Could you walk through real quick sort of how that budget comes about. Where is the governor involved? Where does the General Assembly get involved? How's it work? 
Sure, yeah. The explainer part of this is that the governor gets the first crack in making a proposal, um, but he doesn't have the final say. This is not a state that's run by the executive. Uh, he presents the proposal to members of the General Assembly, and then they get to make their proposals. Um, and so then usually what happens is like there's a House budget and then the Senate budget, and they need to figure out a way to reconcile that. So they go behind closed doors and figure all this stuff out in a secret closed door conference committee that's not open to the public. It's not open to the press. It is totally non-transparent. And that's how they actually figure out Michael, what they want to do. it feels like you might have some opinions on this. <laughs> I mean, I have an opinion that the best way to have government in Virginia or elsewhere is transparency. And, you know, if they have come to the conclusion that the best way to make decisions is behind closed doors in a, in a, in a fashion that's not open to the public or the press. And, and that's how things work in Virginia. Michael Pope is a journalist covering state politics here in Virginia. He's also the co-host of Pod Virginia, a fellow podcast dedicated to Virginia state politics. Give him a listen. We're going to take a short break and pick back up with Michael in just a moment. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Hey, and I want to tell you, we are looking for good ideas to cover in 2023. If you've ever had a question about state politics, something that didn't make sense, or you just want a better explanation, well, let us know. Maybe we can help. Shoot us an email at bolddominion at virginia.edu. Anyway, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Hey, leave us a nice review while you're there. We like those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. Listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back with journalist Michael Pope. He's talking about what we can expect from the General Assembly in the legislative session that starts next week. Okay, so what else uh, can we find in this proposed budget? What are some of the other big ticket items? Sure, yeah. Well, one of the biggest is tax cuts. So, you know, Republicans love tax cuts. Governor Yunkin may be running for president at some time in the very near future. So uh, it would really be the kind of thing he could talk about on the on the campaign trail that he proposed a billion dollars worth of tax cuts. So even if he's not successful in getting it done, just the fact that he proposed it can be a benefit to him in the future. Um, most of that is corporate tax cuts. So reducing the corporate tax rate from 6% to 5%. There is also a reduction in the state income tax the governor also wants to make the tax code, the tax system, just a little bit more progressive by doubling the standard deduction, uh, which is a wonky way of saying basically reduce the tax burden on most individuals in Virginia, uh, including people at the lower end. Um, there was a recent report from a state agency that outlined a whole bunch of menu items that would that could possibly make the state income tax more progressive. And the governor took most of those and threw them in the garbage can. Um, you know, like a good example of this would be tying the income tax 
to inflation so that it would be updated continually as inflation moved on. Uh, we know we currently have a tax structure that taxes people who make an outrageously large sum of money at the exact same rate as people who make a moderate amount of money. So it's not at all tied to inflation. The governor had an opportunity to do that. He did not take it. And so he does want to make the tax code just a little bit more progressive by doubling the standard deduction. Some of the other things uh, that are in the governor's proposal, $100 million for teacher retention bonuses, $100 million to fix the sewer system in Richmond, which dumps raw sewage into the river every time that there is a heavy rain. $50 million for a lab school push. This is going to be controversial because, you know, supporters of public education believe that labs, you know, funding for lab schools undermines public education. Um, $12 million to demolish the Pocahontas building. That would be a tearjerker for people who spend a lot of time in Richmond. Um, and then one of the more controversial parts of the governor's proposal was a $50,000 proposal. So not a big ticket item here, but significant for this reason, because he would set aside $50,000 as a way to incarcerate people if abortion becomes illegal. So he wants to ban abortions after 15 weeks. So what happens if you do an illegal abortion, you have to be incarcerated. So the $50,000 in the governor's budget makes that a reality by incarcerating people who have engaged in breaking the new law outlawing abortion. But wait, so there is no current law outlawing abortion though, right? No, but what often happens in Richmond is if they're debating a law, they will say, well, you know, accomplishing this law is going to require money. Is there money in the budget to do this? No. Okay, well, we're going to kill the bill then. So the fact that the governor is preemptively putting money in the budget prevents them from killing it because there's not the money to do it. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg here. No, yeah, that makes sense. I can I can totally imagine it in sort of a lawmaking context of just, oh, look, there's no money for this. Uh, let's not worry about it. Moving on. Right. I can totally see yeah, it happening. That happens every committee meeting. They when they're debating a bill, they'll say, you know, I might agree with this in theory, but there's there's not money in the budget. So we're going to put this on the table and move on. So he's getting rid of that excuse. But from what we talked about earlier, given the divided government, that an abortion bill would probably fail just on the merits of it. Right. Yes, that is true. But it does indicate that he's serious about it and that he really wants to make it happen. I mean, so I mean, it is an indication of, you know, where the governor's real policy priorities lie. So like strategically, what is kind of the point of that? Right. So I guess another way of putting it is, you know, what's the likelihood that that budget item even stays in in the final budget? Well, the House Republicans are certainly going to keep it in their budget. So the Senate Democrats are going to take it out of their budget. So this will be one of the things they need to reconcile at the end of the General Assembly session in late February. And this is when they go into their secret closed door meeting to, to reconcile the two budgets. Um, and then, you know, returning to the process here, then the governor gets to make amendments and they come back again. So, I mean, like this is actually there are multi there are many, many steps to this process involving a lot of cooperation and agreement, um, which, you know, Virginia actually has a long history of coming to these agreements in, 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 in a way that Washington often doesn't. You know, you often hear about all this brinksmanship in Washington with, you know, not agreeing on the budget and the government shutdown and that sort of thing. You don't really see that in Virginia. Eventually, they will come to some kind of an agreement to keep the government open. Um, and th so this is a, one of the kinds of things 
that they will be debating at the end of the process when they're trying to reconcile the Democratic Senate budget and the House Republican budget. Okay, so we've covered a lot of the kind of big picture items for things we might see in the session. Uh, are there any other kind of topics that might come up in the next month as the, the assembly meets? Sure. Yeah, I think we are definitely going to see some debate about affordable housing. So this is one of those issues that crosses party lines because Republicans and Democrats are both feeling the squeeze here in terms of making sure that there's adequate access to affordable housing. The tension, of course, comes in like the details, right? So like, how do you actually make that happen? The governor has a proposal on this. It's called Make Virginia Home, which sounds good. And sort of the major outlines of the policy that the governor has released sound kind of good, you know, increasing the supply of land for affordable housing, removing regulatory barriers to development, aligning development with economic development, um, like, you know, real, like development of land with economic development in terms of bringing businesses to Virginia, that sort of thing. The, the problem is, what's how does that actually work and what does that mean? So when you talk about, you know, reducing regulatory barriers to development, does that mean that you're not going to allow local governments to make demands about water quality? Does that mean that you're not going to allow local governments to make demands about, you know, environmental sustainability of building codes. Everyone shares the bigger goal of increasing the availability of affordable housing. But if that means that you tell a developer that you, we're not going to hold you to these strict environmental standards, I think you're going to see some pushback on that. I feel like housing is just a, a perpetual topic that must always uh, be coming up. And, and I guess it makes sense, right? Because the majority of, of zoning, I think, is is residential. It's uh, where people live is kind of the most important form of building that there can be to make. And that's why it feels like it's pretty important to maybe keep the standards for those buildings, even as we make them more affordable. Yeah. And we are seeing local governments in Virginia take sort of depart from historical views on this. A good example of this is Arlington, where they want to get rid of the concept of single family zoning and, you know, have lots that currently are zoned for single family housing. They want to get rid of that and then have a duplex, a triplex, a threeplex, a fourplex, a fiveplex, a sixplex. And so, I mean, we saw a debate about that unfold in this last election cycle that uh, the voters ended up taking kind of a middle ground-ish. I mean, it, they still want the sixplex, you know, and the sevenplex, but maybe not the eightplex, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, like this is an issue where people are having new opinions and sort of taking a different look at these, you know, what does it mean to have single family zoning? And is it racist? Is there a history of racism inherent in single family zoning? that should be abandoned. And and you're having local governments all across Virginia ask these questions right now. I'm sure as kind of with any time you ask that question in Virginia, the answer is, yeah, probably a little. <laughs> yeah. Is the reason we have this thing racism? The answer is probably yeah. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your reporting uh, as the session unfolds. Michael Pope is a journalist who covers Virginia politics, and he's one of two hosts over at that other state politics podcast, Pod Virginia. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer and editor this week was Arian Balu. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. <laughs>